0: Turn with me this evening to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, the very end of your Bibles. I'll read verses 1 through 8 this evening. Revelation chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. Brothers, sisters, let's hear God's word. This is the second death. Amen. We'll end our reading there and let's ask for God's help. Father in heaven, again, thank you for the people of God, our fellowship in Christ, and the beauties of your word. Let I just pray once again, Lord, we hear you speaking in the scriptures. We enjoy learning. We want for you to teach us. And Lord, especially transform us. May, again, we go out and because of what we hear tonight, be encouraged in our faith. Be moved to give thanks to you, to worship you, to live for you, to persevere in the faith, to be agents of God in this world, spreading good news and working for the renewal of your creation as we head towards this glorious completion and this consummation of your work. So make us your people, shape us into that image. And thank you that Jesus loves us and that he's merciful, has prepared for us this great place. May it be a blessing and glorifying to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we made our way through Romans chapter 8, we talked much about our journey to the new creation. That God promised Abraham he would be the heir of the world. That what God was doing through Abraham to bless the nations would ultimately result in a new creation. One in which death had gone away, in which sin had gone away. It's one of the reasons Abraham likely so earnestly worked to buy that plot of land for Sarah. That he would have a possession in this land God had given him. And that with the eyes of faith he would look forward, then even beyond that, to the renewal of all things. Jesus tells the Sadducees, you should have known from the passage about the burning bush, that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. god's going to make a covenant with his people and work through them it is towards the goal of a new creation and jesus comes and begins that great work he kicks it off so to speak and now we are journeying towards it well in light of all that let's take a moment tonight and let's consider the end of the journey let's look at the bible's description of that new creation and we speak in, new, in terms of new creation because it is a renewal, a remaking of God's present creation. Now, whether that's to destroy one and replace it or to refashion one, not 100% clear in Scripture. It could go either way. But nonetheless, you do have this picture of new creation, new heavens and new earth, and not merely one of, say, disembodied existence. So in Revelation Revelation 19, we have the return of Christ. Revelation 20, the final judgment. And coming into Revelation 21, then the renewal of all things. Christ comes down from heaven to earth. And heaven and earth become one. And while we have the hope of, of when we pass to see the Lord, to be with him in heaven, that's a glorious hope. Yet that's not the final destination. There's one more stop when God brings heaven to earth and remakes all things in his beautiful new creation. So the question then is, how does the Bible describe that eternal state? What does it look like? Well, the vision before us in Revelation 21 is John's vision of the new heaven and the new earth. So let's look at that in a few minutes we have tonight. And the vision divides into three sections. First, you have the arrival of the new heaven and the new earth and the first two verses set the scene for everything that follows john says then i saw a new heaven and a new earth you think of the first words of the bible and now these words near the very end they have a remarkable symmetry in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth and now John sees a new heaven and a new earth. But don't just think of it as round two, creation 2.0. God saying, let me take another run at this creation thing. No, this is not just a replacement in the second attempt. This is the culmination of God's plan for the ages. This is God wrapping up his great work of redemption and instituting a new order. That lasts for all eternity. And according to verse 1, God makes a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. That happened in the previous chapter at the great white throne judgment where all of the dead stood before God. And those whose names were found written in the book of life entered the kingdom prepared for them. From the creation of the world. And those whose names were not written in the book of life departed into everlasting fire. And at that judgment we read that the very earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. So the appearance of God Almighty in the final judgment causes even the heavens to flee away. Peter speaks of this in his second letter. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. One day this present creation will come undone. But that is not the end of existence. Quite the contrary. Again, to quote Peter, while that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat, yet God's people are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So it's certainly not the end of existence, nor is it just the escape from this creation, but there's the hope that with that judgment comes renewal. With that judgment comes rebirth. And this is exactly what Isaiah promised long ago. He said, see, this is God speaking through the prophet, see, I will create new heavens and new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. The passage we've read tonight describes that very day. That's what's being presented to us. Now, just as a note, what about John's comment here that there is no seed? In the new creation. Are there no large bodies of water in the new earth? Well, I guess that could be literally true. I mean, God can do anything. He could design a creation that doesn't rely on large bodies of water. But I think John is probably speaking here metaphorically. Listen to Isaiah 57 verse 20. Where the prophet says, The wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest whose waves cast up mire and mud. There the wicked are referred or compared to the sea. In Revelation 13, this beast who blasphemes God, likely some kind of political power, it comes out of the sea. So in scripture, the sea often represents the nations and often the nations in tumult, causing trouble or rebelling against God. In the beginning of Revelation, when John is in heaven and sees the heavenly throne room, we read that in front of the sea—or excuse me, in front of the throne—the sea is like glass. So, from God's perspective, as far as God's throne is concerned, the sea is like glass. It's calm. God is totally sovereign over human affairs. It's like a beautiful lake on an early morning appearance. The sea is like glass. Down on earth, perhaps that's not the reality as we experience it. But from heaven's perspective, that's the true state of affairs. And so when God comes again, well, there will be no more sea. What's true of the heavenly throne room will be true on the creation. God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is something for which we pray now. And that is something that God will bring about when he comes again. So who is present in the new creation? If there isn't a sea, if there aren't rebellious nations, who is present? Well, verse 2 answers that question. John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I think once again, just as we did with the sea, I think we have here a symbol once again. Notice that the holy city, the New Jerusalem, is compared to a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Earlier in Revelation, we read of the wedding of Jesus and his bride, God's holy people. Right here in chapter 21, if you look down to verse 9... God tells John, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, which he then describes as the holy city, Jerusalem, verse 10, coming down out of heaven from God. What is this city? It's the bride of Christ, and that's you and me. God's people from all ages live forever in the new creation. No more tumult. No more rebellion, no more disorganization and angst, but rather God's perfectly built city. And later this city, by the way, is described as a cube, which is an odd shape for a city, but it's the idea of perfect completion, and it resembles the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament worship. So the presence of God with His people. Now why, by the way, might God describe His people in terms of a city? The bride imagery is a little easier to understand. The intimate connection. We're married to the Lord. He takes us as His people. But why a city? Well, I think John's point is to contrast the people of God with the people who follow the ways of the world, or the world system, that is, the system in rebellion against God. In chapter 18, verses 2 and 3, John writes, With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal, for all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Babylon, the enemy of God's people in the Old Testament, used to describe those systems That would fight against his people in the New Testament. And Babylon is described as unclean. A place of adultery and excessive luxury. It's a wicked city. So God creates a holy city. That's how he describes his people. Again, verse 2. The holy city prepared as a bride. Beautifully dressed for her husband. Because you are in Christ. God's people are holy, they are beautiful, they are pure, and they enjoy perfect communion with God and with one another for all eternity. So let's come to the next idea then. We've seen already the arrival of the new heavens and the earth. Let's look now at the beauty of the new heaven and the new earth, teeing off from the image we were just given. And we're concerned here with the second section, verses 3 through 5. In the first two verses, John tells us what he saw. Now, in verses 3 through 5, he tells us what he hears. And he hears things that depict the beauty of the new heavens and the new earth. Now, we're never told exactly who the speaker is, but the voice comes from the throne. So most likely, God. God will refer to himself in the third person, but here is this voice coming from the throne, and it says in verse 3, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. What's the first beautiful thing we see about the new creation? It's that God himself is there. And he is present in a way that God's people have not experienced since the Garden of Eden. I want you to notice the key words there. We have the words dwelling place and dwell. Those words are often associated with the tabernacle in the Old Testament. God's dwelling place among his people. And just listen to this theme throughout the scriptures. In the Garden of Eden, God would walk in the garden in the cool of the day. But after Adam and Eve sinned, God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. But God's gracious purpose is to restore fellowship between him and sinful humans to remake his creation. And so when God made the Mosaic Covenant with Israel and he gave them instructions for worship, he told them, have them make a sanctuary for me. And I will dwell among them. There's some sanctuary language in the Garden of Eden. And God says, alright, I'm going to make a new sanctuary so I can live with them. And when Israel entered Canaan, they built the temple. And God lived with them. And when Christ came, he was God with us. The Word made, became flesh and made his dwelling And when he returned to heaven, we think, okay, now we don't have God for a little while. No, he sent the Spirit, and the Spirit gathers his people, and the Spirit lives among us as God's temple. That's why Paul can ask the Corinthians, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? The Spirit dwells with us now, making known to us the presence of Christ, giving us access into the Father's presence. That's what God is doing. He keeps getting closer and closer as redemptive history proceeds. And now, finally, after the resurrection, after the final judgment, after the consummation of God's plan, now he dwells right smack among them in perfect, unhindered fellowship. That covenant promise, I will be your God, And you will be my people, looked at it in Hosea today in Romans 9, finally, perfectly fulfilled. Like lovers that have been separated by time and space, we're finally with the one we long to see. So we come then into verse 4, if God is with us, what does that mean? Well, it means the promise of verse 4, a beloved promise that has comforted many of God's people. After all of the sorrows introduced by man's fall into sin, after thousands of years of death and decay and suffering, we read that in the new heavens and the new earth, God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. A promise that no human description can give justice to, But for every person who's buried a spouse, a parent, a child, for every person who's wept at the damage caused by sin and injustice, for everyone who's felt the sting and pain of loss, this day represents the final punishment (laughs) of sin, sorrow, and pain. The old order of things passes away, and death is no And in the new creation, you experience the tender touch of God, like a parent to a child, assuring you the long night is over. The new day has dawned. Some have, at times, looked at these tears. I remember hearing this in preaching when I was younger. As well, well, these are the tears that people shed because, you know, that judgment of Christians. They realize all they should have done and they're, they're sorrowful over their failures and, and how bad they were. And, and, and having judged them, then God wipes away their tears and says, okay, now everything's okay. There's nothing in this text that suggests that. Nothing in any other passage that would fit comfortably in this passage with that sense. In fact, the first time this phrase is used in Revelation, it refers to the martyrs who come out of great tribulation, which is hardly an example of failed Christian. No, these are the tears that result from earthly sorrows. And in the new creation, God wipes them away forever. It's back to the Garden of Eden, but even better than the Garden of Eden. That was a place without fear, pain, crying, or death. And now the new creation of the place where there will no longer be, where there cannot be death or grief or crime or pain, any. And so this section ends with two declarations from the one on the throne. First he says, verse 5, I am making everything new. God's work of new creation is all-encompassing in its scope. And notice especially, God does not say, I am making all new things. Rather, I am making all things new. So it's not just junking the creation and starting out. So I lean towards that way of understanding new creation. It's redeeming it and restoring it to how it was before sin and death. But as I said, even better, for now there's no temporal limitations. Now there's no possibility of sin. But it's a good reminder that this earth and its joys, those are not something sinful from which we need to be liberated. It's not, we've got to get you off this planet because all these material things are bad. No, it's God removes the traces of sin so that we can enjoy His presence and His creation properly. Now, we're not tempted to idolatry, to misuse the creation, but to use it properly for enjoyment and the glory of God. As Paul says in Romans 8.21, The creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And I would argue, as I've been saying in the preaching recently, is that's already begun, so start working that out now in your life and wherever God puts you to work and live. In fact, we see this in several texts. So God is speaking here of the work of new creation. And that's something that was promised back in Isaiah. Well, in Matthew 19.28, Jesus speaks of the renewal of all things. Again, new creation. But the word he uses that's translated as renewal is the same word that Paul uses when he discusses what we call regeneration or rebirth. So Titus 3.5 talks about the believer's washing of rebirth, And renewal by the Holy Spirit. So the Bible gives this trajectory of rebirth. Everything's being renewed. And Paul says when you come to life, when the Spirit gives you spiritual life, you're being reborn. You're being renewed. In other words, every time God takes a dead sinner and saves him, it's a token of the new creation. It's an individual kickoff for what's going to happen one day on a cosmic scale. So when we talk about better days coming, that is a hope we have. I hope this message encourages your hope. Don't forget Times of victory and joy have already begun. Spiritual death, bondage to sin, that is already over. The fear of physical death has lost its sting. And so we await now the consummation. We, we await the final realization of those things. When even heaven, or excuse me, when even death itself is cast into the lake of fire. And if we ever doubt that truthfulness, God tells us in verse 5, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Here's one of those instances in the Bible where God says, right, I want you to write this down. As if we needed that extra assurance. Because we do. God says, write it down. I'm not telling a lie. I am telling the truth. And I'm giving you this extra assurance. So when it hurts and you weep and cry, remember God has already begun to drive back the darkness. And one day he will dispel that night entirely. So we come then to the third idea. The inhabitants of the new heaven and the new earth. The final section concludes the passage. With an invitation, having set out this beautiful feast, this beautiful picture, God says, all right, come and enjoy it. In verse 6, God turns to John and says, it is done. From God's vantage point, everything is finished. It is certain and fixed. We're not there yet, but from God's perspective, it's done. It's going to happen. How do we know that? Because he is the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end He is before all things and after all things and sovereign over time and eternity. God knows what is going to happen and he has ordained everything that will come to pass. And so he can be sovereign over those things. And his words can be trustworthy and true as he guides history to this determined end. But not only is God sovereign, as we considered this morning, He is also gracious. To the people who made a mess of His creation in the first place, the ones who broke His law, He now says, to the thirsty, I will give water without cause, from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. And we have the same thought in the next chapter as Revelation wraps up. The spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, let the one who is thirsty, Come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. you feel yourself sometimes spiritually thirsty, you need that life-giving grace of Jesus, that reassuring grace of Jesus. You need something to satisfy you beyond what This world can offer something that can only satisfy the way God can. Jesus offers it. C.S. Lewis speaks of our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off. To be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside and to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. You ever just feel that ache to be on the other side of that door? Jesus gives you the invitation to come and drink to satisfy you enough now until he brings us into that room. We have a reference in verse 7 to uh, those who are victorious, which is a good reminder, gracious invitation, all of God, And yet, the reminder that we must also persevere to the end. That ties back to the beginning of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, the address to the seven churches, each of which ends with a promise to the overcomers or the victorious, those who withstand the temptations presented either from outside or inside the church, depending on which church God is speaking to. Those who overcome, those who are victorious over those temptations, those who aren't seduced by those pleasures or by those comforts or by those compromises or by that error or evil, then Jesus says, when you overcome that, you inherit this blessing. And I think we could also say it's only by being satisfied with Christ and only by drinking of that water of life that we will actually persevere then to finally obtain it. And what about those who rebel against the Lord. Verse 8 says, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. There's no place in the new creation for those who won't surrender to Christ, who won't drink that water of life and overcome and follow Him. Their place instead is in the lake of fire existence, so painful and terrible, we can't even begin to comprehend it. Now, there's a few more verses in the rest of this chapter that give a few more details, but we've seen, I think, from these eight verses, the main point. One day, it could be today, the Bible says this is the next thing God will do, but one day Christ will come again. He will usher in the eternal. He will summon humanity before him. He will evaluate them. He will consign those who are damned to hell. He will welcome the righteous into the new heavens and the new earth. And while maybe the Bible stops here in terms of telling us what will happen, one day God's story will keep going beyond what he's told us and beyond what has been written here. So I leave you then with one more C.S. Lewis quote that I think helps Paint that picture. Create that hunger. At the end of the final book in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle, the main characters enter heaven, what Lewis calls the true Narnia. And he writes, The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, It was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before be hard to comprehend and you know, think about eternity and maybe the feeling of i don't know there's so many good things to enjoy here and then god says hey that's the start of the story and you just have no idea how good it will get." so let's pray for god to increase our hope and to increase our longing to help us live now wait patiently for him let's pray father in heaven thank you for the beauty of the new creation and you have given us here tonight a beautiful picture that we couldn't possibly come up with ourselves, but revealed by you and by your grace and through other teachers of the faith it illustrated beautifully for us. Lord, give us that long, give us that faith, give us that assurance, and help us to be now the people of the new creation and to persevere in faith towards that end. Keep us from error, make us victorious. Thank you for Jesus Christ the Lord who sustains us with the water of life.